we all just discussions amongst ourselves feel that she probably knew this person. Um, the attack happened in the bedroom, um, and if it was just a, a random burglary, it was something. It's somebody she wouldn't know. In October 2004, forensic investigators and detectives arrived at a house in North Dublin. Rose Callaway had called emergency services when she'd gone round to find out where her daughter had gone to. Her adult daughter, Rachel, lived in the house with her husband, Joe, and two children. But on this cold October afternoon, the nursery group her youngest son had gone to had called her husband, Joe, when Rachel had failed to pick up their son. It was completely unlike Rachel. She was always there to pick up her children and she was always on time. And so Rose had gone round to Rachel's house to see if she was there. And when she arrived, she found the bloody and battered body of her only daughter. It wasn't long before Rose knew exactly who had killed her daughter. It was obvious to her and an easy conclusion to come to, but proving it was gonna be much, much harder. This is Red Rum, stories about the true victims of crime. This show is made from various source documents listed in the show notes. I use news archives, documentary footage and court documents, and so the episodes are accurate to the source materials I can find. Find all the episodes that are on YouTube as a podcast version if you prefer to listen on the go, all available in the description box below. Rachel was just a baby when she was adopted by Rose and Jim Callaway, and she was welcomed to join her three new brothers and sister. Rachel was on the hockey team and loved badminton, softball and swimming. She enjoyed all things sports and was incredibly social with friends of all ages. There wasn't a person in her school who didn't know her and as she got older, she became part of a big group of friends and was thought of as someone you could always rely on. She met her husband Joe back in 1991 when they both worked in the same department store. They got on well and Joe seemed utterly infatuated with Rachel. Commenting on her beauty and specifically on her height, she was 5 foot 11 and it was striking to him. Rachel, however, wasn't super keen on dating Joe and the first few times he asked, she said no. But then one day, he turned up at her softball practice saying he wanted to try it out and would be keen to get on the team. Throughout the next few sessions, Joe and Rachel got to know each other more and eventually she agreed to go on a date with him. The relationship progressed and Joe ended up proposing to Rachel whilst they were in Paris visiting the Eiffel Tower. You proposed to her where? In Paris, up the Eiffel Tower. So it was either propose or she'd throw me off. So. All right. <laughs> the couple went on to get married and they had two sons together and they moved to a house in Knoll. On the morning of the 4th of October 2004, Rachel left her house at around 9am. She dropped one of her sons at school for the day and then her other son to nursery, where she planned to pick him up as usual at 12.30pm. There's not a huge amount known about the specificity of Rachel's movements after this point, but we do know that from the CCTV that surrounding areas has captured, that we see Rachel's car passing down a road at 9.03 a.m., going away from her house and towards where she was dropping her children off at. And then her car is seen again at the children's nursery at 9.30 a.m. by eyewitnesses and more CCTV. Then further footage tracks Rachel's car making its way back past the nearby quarry and towards her house, and this is at 9.41 a.m., from the spot her car has been seen at, it's just a 30-second drive from there to her house on Lambay View. The next thing that happened, at least officially, 
was that at around 12.45pm, Joe's phone started ringing. It was someone from the nursery informing him that Rachel had just failed to pick up their son. Joe said that he began to worry. This was completely unlike Rachel, and so he called her mobile phone, but she didn't answer. And so he then made the decision to make the journey to go and pick his son up. And whilst he was doing that, he also called Rachel's mum and dad at their house and asked if they'd seen her, but they hadn't. But Rachel's mum, Rose, agreed that she would go out and look for her. The only thing that Rose could think of at this point was that perhaps Rachel had gotten into some kind of an accident or had a fall and wasn't physically able to get to pick her son up. Nothing else would have stopped her. Joe then called Rachel's brother, Anthony, to let him know what was going on and see if he'd heard anything from her, but he hadn't. And with that, Rose told Joe that she would go to the house that Rachel and Joe lived in and see if she could find any evidence of where Rachel might be. Joe was still at work at this point, about to leave to pick the children up, and so Rose said he would call her with any news. It was around 2pm that same afternoon that Rose arrived at Rachel's house and she saw Rachel's car parked outside and so believed that there was a chance Rachel was inside the house. As Rose approached the door, she noticed that it was slightly open and so she went straight inside. She could see straight away that something wasn't right. The house was deadly quiet and the whole of the downstairs area was a complete mess. There were kitchen drawers out and on the floor, and there were piles of videos, things that just shouldn't have been there. And that's when she walked a little further into the house and came across the body of her daughter, and she was brutally battered. There was blood spatter everywhere, and Rachel was cold to the touch. And Rachel's dad, Jim, arrived soon after, along with one of their sons, and it was clear to all of them that Rachel was dead and she had been for some time. The lead detective said, quote, Her hair was matted in blood. You could see down to her skull. You could see there was severe force used to inflict that. So the poor woman had no chance whatsoever. Absolutely none. It was savage, cold, just unbelievable. Rachel's autopsy showed that she'd been struck with a heavy item such as a dumbbell. This item was missing from the scene. And as well as this, she had defensive wounds on her arms and around her skull, and she had two fractures. Now, she had blood in her airways, which they determined would have restricted her breathing quite significantly. Officers investigating the case penned the theory that this was most likely a burglary gone wrong. Someone had come into the family home, attempted to rob it, and very likely stolen some items of value before planning to leave. But in this scenario, they had somehow ran into Rachel and ended up killing her in order to get away. But the lead detective on the case thought differently. Although there had been a number of other burglaries in the surrounding areas, there wasn't anything that necessarily linked this crime to any of those other ones. And on top of that, the crime scene itself looked as though it might actually be staged. The entire kitchen had been completely turned upside down. The table was on its side. Various drawers had come out of their sockets and were on the floor as well. And these things just didn't make any sense for a run-of-the-mill burglary. That just wouldn't happen. And the officers investigating also found that there was still a good amount of money left inside the house and inside of Rachel's handbag. 
a total of well over 1,000 euros. Investigating officers then took their search outside of the house and down the road, and what they found just half a mile away from the house was even more evidence. This time they found a, a jewellery box and a video camera, both of which were quite expensive items and they'd just been dumped. Something the detective knew was highly unlikely if this robbery was just for money or expensive items. Investigators then moved on to look at who would be the person most likely to have done this. Rachel's body had been viciously beaten and it was beaten in such a way that the lead detective thought the perpetrator must have known Rachel or had some kind of connection to her. And so they asked Rachel's husband, Joe, if he knew anyone who might have wanted to hurt her or might have had some kind of problem or vendetta against the couple. Now, Joe came up with some names quite quickly. He could think of quite a few people in this category, especially people who he had a problem with or people who might have hurt Rachel to get back at him, including a few people who he'd been in charge of actually firing as part of his work. He was working at an outdoor advertising agency and that was one of his jobs. But on further investigation, it didn't take the police long at all to rule out all the names that Joe gave. Why? What, you know, what, why, Rachel? Why then? Uh, what did she do, in, in your opinion, to deserve this? Uh, are you going to do it again? If you are, you know, you, you need help. What you've done is wrong. You've taken away a very young life for no good reason. I feel I know you because you had to kill her. You couldn't leave her alive to, to identify you. So it's a matter of time before you're found. And that's when the detective suggested to Joe that perhaps Rachel was having an affair and this had been someone who had become jealous and angry. And Joe's response to that was that Rachel wasn't having an affair. And then after some prompting, he went on to say that it was him who was having the affair. He said that he'd been seeing a woman called Nikki Pelly, but he clarified that it wasn't serious and it wasn't happening anymore. And this obviously raised some alarm bells for the detective. The picture Joe had painted of the relationship was one that was full of love and pretty much perfect, at least to the outside eye. But given this new information, as well as some witness accounts from friends and some family members, this just didn't seem to be the case. Through their investigating, police spoke to a friend of Rachel's who told them that Rachel had been suspicious of her husband and she had even confronted him about the affair and she told him that if things didn't change and he didn't change his ways, then she would just leave. Eventually, Joe did admit that he was seeing Nikki and when he was doing that, he would simply tell Rachel that he was working late. And there were even times when Nikki actually stayed over at Rachel and Joe's house in Rachel's bed. And this affair that Joe had played off as a fling was actually very serious to the point where Joe had actually introduced Nikki to his children, to his and Rachel's children. Police were obviously very suspicious of Joe at this point, and so they went through his statement about where he was on the morning of Rachel's murder with a fine-tooth comb. Joe had said that on the morning of the murder, he had been sleeping in a separate room from Rachel. Two reasons for this. One was that they had had an argument the night before, and the other was that he knew he was going to be getting up to go to the gym early. 
And so he'd woken up at around 5.20am, travelled to the gym, completed his workout, and then he'd headed into work for 7.15am. He told police he worked for the following hour, and then he headed to Boardstone Bus Depot, where he'd planned to meet a colleague of his to carry out some off-site work. Now, during this time, his phone records would show that he texted Rachel, quote, you and the boys sleep okay, wish Jackie a happy birthday for me, please. And then after that, he headed back to work, arriving at midday. The next thing of uh, significance in that workday was that he called Rachel, but got no answer. And between midday and 1.45pm, he kept calling, but the phone just went to voicemail. And of course, he got that phone call from the nursery during this time, saying that Rachel had never turned to collect their son. So from there onwards, we know exactly what happened and his movements. And in fact, we know that when Joe arrived at the crime scene, he saw Rachel's body and he began sobbing. He went over to her body, got onto the floor and hugged her, saying, quote, Jesus, Rachel, what did you do? Of course, in doing this, actually getting down to hug her, he had compromised the um, the crime scene. But the officers who arrived managed to get Joe away from Rachel and then they cordoned off the area as a crime scene. Just a few days after the murder, Joe paid Rachel's parents a visit and this is quite bizarre. He told them that he could predict what had happened based on what he found at the crime scene in terms of blood and Rachel's body and the way she'd been found. Now, Rachel's mum and dad were completely shocked when Joe started acting out what he believed had happened. He said that the murderer must have gotten onto Rachel, managed to get her onto the ground, hit her on the front of the head, and then stepped over her body to go and clean off in the bathroom. And he then added the chilling detail that the murderer must have heard Rachel gargling and then gone back to, quote, finish her off. Joe wasn't shy about talking about his wife's murder. He spoke to a number of people about the tragedy and at some point he actually agreed to do an on-the-record interview with a photographer present. And in this interview, Joe was incredibly vocal and detailed about the crime scene and what it was like. And yet again, he reenacted what he believed must have happened. Actually, in this case, getting down on the floor in front of the journalist and the photographer, and again, just acting out as he'd done with Rachel's parents, what he thought must have happened to Rachel. Joe's public appearances did not end there though. He then appeared on a TV show where he answered questions about Rachel and he was adamant that Rachel must have known her killer. Meanwhile, the investigation continued and there was a specific incident room set up at the station and alongside this, door-to-door inquiries were conducted in the local area. But the investigator's lead detective had his focus set firmly on Joe. He had discovered that Joe had continued his affair with this same woman, Nikki Pelly, the same woman he'd been cheating on Rachel with. And in fact, when he was out appealing for information about who Rachel's killer might be, and he was doing one of these TV appearances, he was offered a hotel as part of this, and he declined the offer so that he could go and spend the night with Nikki. 
But then police got a bit of a break. Joe's alibi of being at the bus depot on the morning of his wife's murder just didn't check out. The colleague he was supposed to be meeting at the bus depot had called Joe, Joe had answered, and he had said that he was there, he was just in a different area of the depot. But this colleague had never actually seen Joe, and in fact, there was no one there that could account for Joe being there at that time at all and at the time of the morning there should have been a good number of people who would have been able to corroborate that he was there and so investigating officers checked the cctv footage from the areas surrounding rachel and joe's house and on closer inspection they saw the same car that joe drove heading towards the family home a little after 9 a.m And then they tracked that same car heading back away from the house at 9.59am. Police needed to get specific about the car and they wanted to link that one in the CCTV footage to Joe for definite. And so they went through all of the cars in the local area that matched Joe's car and they managed to eliminate most of them, um, eventually doing them one by one. It was painstaking work. Now, eventually, they honed in on the one and only car that could be in that area, up near that house at that time. It turned out it was most likely jokes, no surprises there. But even with this, they needed even more solid evidence that would hold up in court. Most likely isn't with certainty, and so they had to search for more evidence. The car evidence just wasn't good enough. Now, thankfully, police did have access to Joe's phone records, and specifically, they got the tracking data. And this tracking data placed Joe going from his home to the office, then to the bus depot, and then after that, his phone travels all the way back from the bus depot towards the direction of the family home. Then at 9.25am, it's tracked right next to his house and this is completely at odds with his alibi and completely demolishes his alibi and it places him at the scene of the crime. So Joe was arrested and he was questioned by the police but he just refused to answer any questions, saying no comment to most of them. And unfortunately, even with all of the evidence that they gathered, they weren't able to locate any kind of murder weapon and any kind of other evidence. The only evidence they did have was circumstantial and just wouldn't hold up in court on its own. And so they had no choice but to let Joe go free. It was painfully clear to both the detectives and Rachel's family that Joe was most likely the murderer, but without the evidence to prove it, there really wasn't a whole lot they could do. Thankfully, it wasn't long before police got another break. This time, a friend of Nikki Pelly, the woman who Joe had been having the affair with, called police to say that Joe had told Nikki that if he would get away with it, then he would kill Rachel. And so because of that information, Nikki was arrested and questioned about this and she admitted it. She said that Joe had told her that it was true, but At the time, she never took it seriously. Police had previously confiscated Joe's computer and a number of emails had been deleted, um, but the forensic technicians could see that they'd been deleted and they managed to retrieve them. And what they found was chilling. On the 9th of June 2004, so four months before Rachel was killed, Joe had been emailing with his sister Anne and these emails were telling. He spoke specifically and extensively to both Anne and 
other members of the family about how Rachel had been a bad mother and he was making out that she was completely unable to care for the children. Now, he was extremely descriptive and horrific in what he was saying, none of which seemed to be true in the slightest. But even so, Joe's own mother got so worried that she called social services who did actually get involved. Now, of course, they couldn't find anything to point towards Rachel as anything other than a loving and caring mother. But either way, Joe continued to try and make her feel as though she wasn't able to care for their children and that she wasn't a fit mother. One set of emails from Joe to his sister Anne spoke about how the social services team were leaning towards Rachel and that she was going to get the children. If they got divorced, then it was clear to him that he would only be able to see his children at the weekends and he just wasn't up for that. He did not want that to happen. It became blindingly obvious that he wasn't going to let this happen and he would have to get rid of Rachel in any way he saw fit. This was extremely compelling and along with all of the other evidence that they had gathered over the previous couple of years, it was in 2006 that they decided they did have enough against Joe and so they arrested him. The case did go to trial and Joe was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. It's clear that Rachel was incredibly loved by those around her, all of her friends and her children. But what really stuck out to me when researching this case was the heartbreak her parents went through. And sadly, at just 31 years of age, their other daughter, so Rachel's sister, Anne, passed away from cancer. Rachel's mum, Rose, said that she was in a bad way from the time Rachel died all the way up to her death. She was paranoid, believing that Joe was out to get her and she was constantly fearful of noises she'd heard around the house, thinking that, and, and telling her mum and dad that someone was actually trying to get into her house. She would often turn up to her mum and dad's house in the early hours of the morning, just wanting somewhere safe to stay for the night. I have said it before, I'm sure I'll say it again. If you are in a bad relationship or a relationship that you just don't want to be in anymore and you think, hmm, maybe the way out of this is to kill my partner, just stop for a second, think about it again and then decide to just leave rather than kill them. Please. I'm researching a case at the minute which is about a woman who um, her husband died and then she wrote a book on grief and then she... Uh, got arrested for the murder of her husband so you don't need to do that you can just go you can just go you don't need to kill them anyway i hope you enjoyed this episode of red run thank you so much for watching happy new year as well i am so glad to be back anyway i will see you next time for another episode of red run bye